Well, um, this, the first thing this past Friday morning, first thing this past Friday morning, um, as I, even, actually even before my prayer time, uh, I, I felt the Holy Spirit strongly prompting me to go in an entirely different direction than I had planned for this message, which is unfortunate because I'd done a lot of preparation uh, prior to uh, Friday morning. But the reason for the prompting of the Holy Spirit is that I have become aware, and I think others perhaps are perceiving this as well, that right now in the church, even in the evangelical church, the very doctrine of salvation is being placed in jeopardy. The, perhaps, if not the core doctrine of our faith, one of the core doctrines of our faith, the doctrine of salvation, the very doctrine of the sufficiency and the efficacy of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary is being brought into question. Now, at my ordination to the presbyterate, the bishop asked me this historic question. Will you be ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away, to banish and drive away from the body of Christ all erroneous and strange doctrines contrary to God's word, and to use both public and private admonitions and exhortations to the weak as well as the strong within your charge, as need shall require and occasion shall give, be given. And to which historic question, I gave the historic response, and I really mean it, I will the Lord being my helper. I will the Lord being my helper. So this morning I am compelled, I believe I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit to fulfill this ordination vow during a critical moment in the life of the church in North America. Now before we go a step further, I want you to remember that I have recently addressed, please listen, I've recently addressed the reality of racism and systems of injustice at some length on two separate occasions from a biblical perspective in sermons on June the 7th and, the Ju and June the 14th. And I encourage you to go back because we do have the ability to do that through our website and podcast. I encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons because there is no way to bring all the nuance that is needed into one, yes, longer than usual sermon this morning. You've been warned. Drink that Red Bull now. Uh, <laughs> so those messages on June the 7th and June 14th are especially important, and here's why, listen, because some white theologians and church leaders started attacking what is known as critical race theory, critical race theory immediately following the unjust killing of George Floyd. In other words, they never stopped to listen to the pain and outrage of the black community in general or black Christians in particular before rushing to, con to correct heresy. The impulse to correct heresy was good, the timing was bad because that was at least, at the very least, grossly, pastorally insensitive. And at the worst, it was a means of, eva of evading the hard conversations that white Christians need to be having about race with our black brothers and sisters. But we do, so we do, at the very beginning, need to deal with the raw edge, the raw edge of death and loss and injustice, before we start offering theological critique. 
But eventually, we do have to banish and drive away from the body of Christ all erroneous and strange doctrines contrary to the Word of God. Because if we don't do that, we will lose the gospel. And if we lose the gospel, we lose, we lose the only means, and I really truly believe this, the only means and the proven means of truly addressing racial hatred and injustice. And ultimately, if we lose the gospel, the result will be eternal separation from God and the loss of eternal life for real men and women and boys and girls. So this is, I can't think of a more important thing to talk about this morning. So, brothers and sisters, this is going to require for you to engage your mental faculties. I know it's Sunday morning, uh, and we don't, uh, maybe we didn't come prepared for that. Uh, we didn't do our crossword puzzle to get ready. We didn't have enough coffee, maybe, but we are going to have to think this morning because we're going to have to follow a, a, a biblical argument. We're going to have to build a very precise biblical foundation in order to address these things in this sermon. And the very first thing that we need to address is this, okay? The Bible shockingly, please keep up, the Bible shockingly teaches that someone else's sin, other than mine and yours, and someone else's righteousness, other than yours, if you have any, I don't have any to claim, someone else's sin in the past and someone else's righteousness in the past has a direct moral impact on my present and in fact affects whether God counts me, whether I can stand before God as guilty or righteous. Someone else's past sin and someone else's past righteous act in the past determines whether God counts me as being righteous before him or still condemned and under sin. Now let that sink in because probably if you are letting it sink in, the alarm klaxons of our American individualism are probably going off in your head right now. Everything we've ever been taught screams that for someone else's sin in the past to be applied to me in the present is entirely unfair. It's completely unjust. That's what everybody, every, every part of me says that. But here is the point, and this is so, so critical. Our very salvation... Our eternal destiny depends on this truth. We're going to have to look at some scripture, though, to back that up. Back that up. Romans chapter 5. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 5, the Bible is the book that says the Holy Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Listen to Paul's argument here. He's making a long, a long argument, but this is a critical turn here. Romans 5, verse 12. Listen to what St. Paul says. Just as sin came into the world through one man, who was that one man? Adam. And death through sin, and so death spread to how many people? Everyone. All men became, to all men, because all sinned. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So did you hear that? We all die because of Adam's sin. Did you commit Adam's sin? No, you did not. 
Do you suffer? Do we all suffer God's judgment of death because of Adam's sin? Yes, we do. So we are all counted guilty before God and receive the judgment of God because of that one man's sin. Article 9 of the 39 Articles of Religion, this is our doctrinal statement in Anglicanism, says this, original sin is not found merely, is not found merely in following in the following of Adam's example. It is rather to be seen in the fault, the fault and corruption which is found in the nature of every person who is naturally descended from Adam. Not only does that sound unfair, it also sounds like incredibly bad news. So how do we deal with this primordial sin committed by someone else that incurred the death sentence on the entire human race and that left to our own devices condemns us, damns us as guilty sinners before a holy and righteous God. I feel like we are smack dab in the middle of the Reformation this moment. Isn't it great? How do we do that? Well, here's, here's why experiencing the consequences for someone else's actions is key to the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Go back to that passage in Romans, Romans 5, and jump down to Romans 15. Listen to this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, what is that, Christ? Death on the cross and resurrection. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. One man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So here is the short version of that. I'll just go there. You don't have to flip there, but uh, you might write the reference down. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul just sums it up. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ Jesus shall all be made alive. That's the gospel. So yes, it is not fair that we should suffer because of our first parents' sin, but the good news is that God is, not going, is going to continue to be not, uh, not being fair by giving us what our very own actions in this moment deserve. Instead, listen, by placing our trust in Jesus Christ, by being born again by water and the Spirit, as St. John writes in his gospel, Christ's righteousness, Christ's obedience is imputed, is accounted to me. Praise God. Praise God. Did I earn that righteousness? No, I did not. That's the gospel. It is a free gift bestowed by another onto an undeserving sinner. So does the judgment of death have the final word? No, it doesn't. We are now united with Christ in his resurrection and life, and life will have the last word. In Christ shall all be made alive. 
So do we have to, do you or I have to carry Adam's sin forever? Are we perpetually condemned before the throne of God? No, we are not. Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, we heard it this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation. How much condemnation is left? A little bit? Maybe a lot? No. No condemnation. How much is no condemnation? It means none. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're going around feeling condemned today and you're a born-again, baptized, spirit-filled Christian, why are you doing that? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How much condemnation are we under? None. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John 1, 9. The Word of God teaches us that if we confess our sins, that we say, yes, we agree with God. Yes, we have sinned. We've done that which is evil in your sight. We have harmed other, other, other creatures of God, other people created in the imago dei, the image of God. Yes, we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to, listen, He is faithful and just, He is right to do it, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from just a little bit of unrighteousness. No. But to, and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. All of this is going to become really important in a moment, but let's continue to build that foundation. Now, for, for false teaching, for false teaching to have any traction, there has to be some appeal to the truth. Are you, did you know that? If false teaching is going to get any foothold, it has to have some appeal to the truth. It is parasitic on the truth of God's Word. In Christianity, heresy usually results in taking one biblical truth out of context ignoring the rest of Scripture and just running with that distorted truth to its logical consequences. That's where most heresy comes from. And here is the truth. Okay, are you ready? This is why we're hearing this sermon this morning. Here is the truth that is being distorted right now. The truth is true. Oppression and injustice are real. That is true. Systems of ungodly privilege are real. That is true. There are real systems of injustice functioning right now in every venue of human existence. We see systems of evil in the academy, in the media, in government, and even, yes, God forgive us, in structures in the church. Law enforcement and... You need to listen to this part. So we do... I think we all agree. Yes, 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 that's all true, Ben. But here's what we need to recognize. Law enforcement and the justice system are not immune to those fallen systems. They're not excluded. They're not exempt from being co-opted by fallen powers. You and I, you and I, even though we are followers of Jesus Christ, are not exempt from being co-opted by these powers, these fallen powers, if we are not vigilant. We are not immune. You and I are not immune to becoming ignorantly complicit with or even active agents of racial injustice. And I hope that we can all agree on that. You see, brothers and sisters, we live in what we would call the between 
times. We live in the between times where the kingdom of God, yes, please listen, the kingdom of God is in fact really and truly breaking in into this very moment and has been doing so since Jesus Christ rose from the dead, ascended to the Father's heaven, and the Father sent the gift of the Holy Spirit upon His church. God's kingdom is breaking in and it is still doing it today. We still get foretastes of God's kingdom in the here and now. Yet at the very same time as God's kingdom being existent within the church and through the church and into the world by God's common grace, at the same time fallen rulers, fallen authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6:12, still dominate so much of what you and I experience. Now please listen, the secular culture... There's a lot of content here. I'm, I, we are recording this, and I'm taking the, the precaution that somehow our audio recording is not going to work, so I'm also doing it on my iPhone just in case because I think we may need to come back and listen to this again. The secular culture, the godless secular culture, is responding to the reality of injustice, is responding to that reality not by turning to the good news of God and Jesus Christ, which is by many seen as the problem, not the solution, but by turning to a way of explaining and dealing with injustice, which is real, but it's a way of explaining and dealing with injustice that is directly derived from atheistic, materialistic Marxism. I don't want to get all into that, but... This is an attractive, this is an attractive explanation because it does contain elements of truth. It is an attractive way of addressing these things. I don't think it offers many solutions. It certainly does a great job trying to diagnose problems. It is an attractive way because it does contain elements of truth. In our post-Christian world, this kind of secular messianism, you know, like a, a secular messiah, secular messianism, has become a substitute for the gospel, for Christianity. It has its own very religious-sounding narrative of creation. There, it's accidental, time plus matter plus chance. Of fall, oppression, systems of oppression. Redemption, liberation. And final consummation, secular utopia. And it does sound extremely religious, and it is in direct competition with Christian faith. Here is a brief and inadequate and an inadequately nuanced. So, yes, I know if you've done papers on this in college, you know, if somebody sent you an article about I know this is inadequate, okay? I had someone, I was, I was steeped in this stuff in Marxist analysis where in a liberal Protestant seminary for four years... And I, you know, liberation theology. And it was, in fact, quite helpful in some ways and in critical theory. So I know it was so cute. Somebody, this is precious. Somebody sent me an article to explain this to me a while back to show me what was going on. Uh, yeah, that article was written in 1978. I was immersed in it from 1987 to 1991. So I've, I've been there. I do have that T-shirt. But so here is a brief and thoroughly, thoroughly inadequately nuanced description of this idea that is now infecting the church. 
One commentator explains it this way. Critical theory is the idea that any human society can be divided into two groups, those who have power and those who don't. According to critical theory, those who have power always oppress those who don't. Therefore, any institution, relationship, and belief system established by those in power, the majority group, is best understood as a tool of oppression. The categories of oppressor and oppressed can be further divided into smaller categories based on things like race, gender, religion, immigration status, income, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Whether you are an oppressor or one of the oppressed is determined by your group identity. As a result, almost everything, almost everything, including institutions like police, government, religion, and the family are tools used by some to oppress those in other groups. Close quote. So listen, human identity, therefore, in this system is not defined by being created in the image of God. It is defined by an identity group. So your identity is not about being made in the image of Creator God, which the Bible says we are. We are made in the image and likeness of God. That's eliminated as a, as a category. Likewise, you are identified by secondary human characteristics, and every human interaction, every human relationship is reduced to competing levels of power. Everyone, everything, parent, child, husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend, boyfriend, boyfriend, whatever it may be in this culture. All right, just whatever's going on in the world right now is reduced to competing levels of power with, as, as opposed to being the arena, the potential venue for relationships of self-giving love. It's all power that these relationships and interactions can be the venue for, self ex uh, for expression of self-sacrificing and love is not on the table. And please listen to this. Your children, if they are in, from kindergarten to 12th grade, and it doesn't matter if they're in public, private, or Christian school at this point anymore, are being indoctrinated into this theory. And everybody who is in university right now, with a couple of exceptions, is being fed, uh, fed from a fire hydrant of this stuff, brainwashed by this. Now, here's where critical theory, I know this is kind of heady stuff, but folks, if we don't get a hold of this, we're going to lose the gospel. If we don't get a hold of this, the church is undone in North America. Here's where critical theory, if it is adopted uncritically, uncritically, doesn't mean you can't use it, but if it is adopted without critical interaction by the church, here's where it leads. It leads to undermining the doctrine of salvation. If we accept this view, the dominant majority population, which in, in this country is white, is, listen, an ir irredeemable, irredeemable oppressor class. Now, if you are a part of the oppressor class, you can become an ally of those who are pursuing liberation. You can be acting on behalf of those 
who are pursuing liberation. But you, yourself, are never free from guilt because of your unalterable identity as a part of the majority dominant class. You will always experience the privilege associated with the dominant group that holds power. As it is currently being expressed by some in the church, we're going to go down to a more granular, granular level. As it is being currently expressed by some in the church, the racial sins of the past, and yes, the current structures of injustice in the present, place members of the majority population, even if they are believers, this is in the church now, into a state of unending and inescapable guilt unending and inescapable guilt, requiring them to perpetually and repeatedly confess sins that have previously been confessed and repented of. There is no way to be released from their guilt. What is not being... Now, here's, and here's where the turn comes. This is the very... This is where the, all of this leads to. This is the bottleneck of the argument. What is not being specifically articulated, but what is logically suggested, here it is, is that there is no end to the condemnation for racial sin. And the cross of Calvary does not have power to break the cycle of sin or to silence the accuser of the brethren. This is the logical conclusion. There is no end to the condemnation, to condemnation for past racial sin or present injustice. And the cross of Calvary does not have the power. It might have power to do everything else. But this one part, this one sin, it does not have the power to break the cycle of sin or to silence the accuser, our accuser, Satan. What all Christians need to realize is that if that is true... Jesus died in vain. Jesus was a fool to get himself nailed up on the cross thinking that he was taking on the sin of the world because he was not. He might have taken on 99.9%, but that 0.1%, no sir, he didn't get that one taken care of. Jesus died in vain. And if that is true, then there is indeed a force greater than the sacrificial, redeeming, restoring love of God loosed upon the world. And if that is true, then God is not God. If we accept this false teaching, then all that logically remains, this is going to sound out there, but it's true. If we accept this false teaching, and it's certainly being expressed in the world beyond the church, then all that logically remains is the nihilistic recourse to cleanse the world with blood and fire until all those who are descended from past oppressors have been slaughtered or who have self-immolated. And a new oppressor class arises to repeat the cycle ad infernum. This is not hyperbole. It was literally publicly suggested in just this past week. There's footnotes in this sermon. I'll give you the notes. While critical theory may get the diagnosis partly right and provide some insights, the only solution apart from the gospel is ultimately death, annihilation of the oppressor. 
So is there a biblical response to this? What is the biblical response to, to this? Well, the answer, <laughs> this is going to be a shock. The answer is the cross of Christ. The racial divide between black and white in North America today, and by the way, racism is not unique to North America. It's not unique to this moment in our culture. It is a universal human experience. Tribalism and racism are universal sins. It started with Cain and Abel and has been going on since then. And if you don't understand that, you are either just naive or indomitably ignorant because I have all of recorded history to prove my point. Ask the Armenians in 1915 if real racism existed. I have talked to the Armenian people. I've been in Armenia and hear, heard their stories of genocide at the hands of the Turks. Or ask just about anybody that got in the path of uh, an inherently racist regime in Japan during World War II that killed millions of Chinese, Filipinos, and South Koreans, or Koreans, excuse me. Or ask anybody who is not a part of the Han people in China today how they feel, whether they're experiencing racial hatred. It's universal. Is there a biblical response? The response is the cross. And so that, and it, and that, that divide actually has a biblical background. I mean, there's a biblical example of it. The racial divide between black and white in North America today is dwarfed by the racial divide that, it, that challenged the early Christian church, the divide between Jew and Gentile. Listen to how St. Paul says that this divide was overcome in the early church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 16 through 13. Ephesians 2, you can look it up. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 13, going to 16, and then verse 19. But now, in Christ Jesus, he's speaking to the Gentiles, you who were once far off have been brought near, okay, he's dealing with the racial divide in the early church, you've been brought near by the blood. You're separated by blood. You think, but you're actually united by blood. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Is there a dividing wall of hostility today? Yes. What breaks it down? Jesus Christ in his flesh offering himself sacrificially by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The cross kills racial hostility. And the church needs to repent today. Not so much, well, we, we definitely, there are churches and denominations that need to go back and review their past and confess and repent and acknowledge past racial sin and oppression. It's real, it's happened, that needs to happen. But the present sin of the church predominantly today is not believing or living this. Rejecting this truth, which, which is so wonderful what Jesus has already accomplished. This is the answer. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So here are four steps, and we're going to close with this. I'm sorry this had to be as long as it was, but it did have to be. Four quick steps. The first step, then, to biblically address where we are right now as the church to deal with false teaching and to address the real and present realities of injustice and racial hatred. The first step is to glorify Jesus Christ for his work of making peace and creating a united humanity in his church through his cross. That is the very first thing. Acknowledge that and glorify Jesus for that. Galatians 3, 27. Listen to what's happening. This is true then, it's true now. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Ephesians 3, 27. There is neither Jew nor Greek, racial divide. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So ultimately the church's sin at this point is that we have resisted and not lived into Christ finished fully accomplished work of reconciliation on the cross. First step, glorify Jesus for what he has accomplished and embrace it. Second step is gratitude and joy, especially for those of us who have, yes, benefited from past racial injustice and who have been complicit with racism in the present. Express gratitude and joy. Why, if I've done those things, I've been a part of that, experienced that, have been privileged by that, I'm going to express gratitude and joy for the infinite, superabundant mercy, grace, and forgiveness that is available to me, a horrible sinner, who's truly guilty of those things, who has that in the past and through, my, and through generations, where I will express gratitude and joy to Jesus Christ because of his grace, mercy, and forgiveness. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's all the grace you will ever need to defeat that past sin. Thank God that I have someone to plead my case because I surely stand condemned before God otherwise. The next step is we need to practice what Latasha Morrison calls acknowledgement and lamentation. Please, you might want to make a note of this. We need to practice what Latasha Morrison calls acknowledgement and lamentation. We cannot correct the wrongs done by our ancestors, but we can in humility acknowledge their reality especially acknowledge their reality to those who still suffer the consequences of that past reality in today's world. We have to be, in her words, brave enough to accept, to accept the historical truths and modern realities of racial injustice. And then we can do this. We can offer lamentation. So please, if you want to write something down, I think this would be something I would write down. Grief and lamentation are appropriate biblical responses as opposed to perpetual guilt and condemnation. Grief and lamentation should be practiced. 
but we don't stand as perpetually guilty and condemned. Latasha Morrison writes, to lament means to express sorrow or regret. Lamenting something horrific that has taken place allows a deep connection to form between the person lamenting and the harm that was done. And that emotional connection is the first step in creating a pathway for healing and hope. Hope. You know, that's something the gospel gives us is hope. We have to sit in the sorrow. We have to sit in the sorrow, avoid trying to fix it right away, avoiding our attempts to make it all okay, and then, only then, is the pain useful. Only then can it lead us into healing and wisdom, acknowledgement and lamentation. And I think that is appropriate. The final step is what patristic and Eastern Christians call nepsis. Let me get my nepsis. It means, nepsis is what? It means being wakeful, watchful, and vigilant so that we, the church, Christians do not follow, fall back into sinful patterns that create or are indifferent to injustice. We need to be watchful. Therefore, stay awake. Nepsis is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Nepsis, N-E-P-S-I-S, Nepsis. If anyone, stand, if anyone thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. I think I just made that up, but it's pretty close to that in King James. Nepsis means crying out to God to shine the searchlight of his spirit to reveal sinful attitudes and actions. This is nepsis. This is watchfulness. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God. Can you pray that? Would you pray that? Will you pray that this morning as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, as we come to dine with and upon Christ, as we come in fellowship with one another in the body of Christ? Will you pray that? Search me, O God. Search me, O God. Search me. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Nepsis, watchfulness, wakefulness. Brothers and sisters, if we will adopt just these, and there's so much more we can say. Yes, inadequate nuance, I'm sorry. I didn't say everything that I could have said, should have said, else, elsewise we'd still be here tomorrow. And it wouldn't be enough still. But if we will adopt those practices, gratitude for Jesus Christ making peace, creating peace, gratitude for that. Gratitude and joy, especially for those who have been oppressors or part of an oppressive system, that we can find forgiveness and release from that guilt, and we need it, and we need to make our confession to those whom we have hurt. Also, to practice acknowledgement and lamentation, and finally, to practice watchfulness. If we will do those things, we will begin, I think, in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, to begin to make steps to bring genuine healing and preserve the gospel of salvation in the church through Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.